When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Cricket Podcast. Uh, I'm Jeff Lemon coming to you from the wilds of British Columbia where the, uh, the, the, the ranks of serried fir trees are marching up over the hills. It's a beautiful sunny day and uh, joining me today is not Adam Collins but he's Daniel Norcross, all the way from London. Uh, hello Daniel. Oh, hello. How lovely to be here. How genuinely lovely to be here after a week of tumult living in a knocking shop, as I'm sure you've seen on our <laughs> final word dailies. To be back into the bosom and hearth of my own home, to be lying as I am right now on my gigantic emperor-sized bed, which is as wide as me <laughs> and as long as me, with the sunshine filtering through my newly pollarded tree. And I'm wearing floaty linen trousers. For the first time, London is ablaze with warmth. My bones are turning into summer bones. I'm feeling the feels, (laughs) baby. How are you? Ah, oh, wonderful, wonderful. I love that you have a, a giant elaborate gravy dish set up next to the bed with a straw to, so you can just just, just sup on a hearty bone broth as you, as you lie back and <laughs> the opium pipe on one side and the gravy pipe on the other. That's oh, the, the ideal existence. It's heaven. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty lovely here as well. In uh, a week, I'll be off to Sri Lanka, so uh, there, there might be an, one more broadcast from Canada before we go um, but then the Sri Lankan series well the Australians are already there playing uh, some white ball cricket we'll get onto that during the show obviously the test match that you've uh, been at and uh, a bunch of other bits and pieces besides the uh, blind cricket record score the record deal for the IPL Moen Ali out of retirement Mark Elaine getting a coaching gig and so on. Plenty of cricketing things going on as the England one-day team head to Netherlands, Afghanistan and Zimbabwe just wrapped up a series. We are starting a new regime on the final word. I thought I'd update you about advertising stuff because if you're listening to the show, you have to listen to the ads and so it is fair enough that you know what's going on. We've just moved over to the Sports Social Network. So we're still a, a bad producer show, but we're being distributed by that network and they put ads in the show at the start and there's a break in the middle and uh, we're just working out how this works we're, we're trying things out um, we've got to make sure that we massage the settings so that we're not you know advertising terrible things so you know let us know if, if something comes up that you think we wouldn't want to be on the show because we'll be monitoring that as we go uh, and you know give us feedback where we're trying this out to see how it works um, if there are things that don't work or things you find annoying you can always get in contact and vent that annoyance towards us by one of the many means we have of getting in contact but uh, look I'll, I'll be blunt Daniel I don't I don't like advertising mm. I don't don't feel excited by advertising there's there's the occasional Cadbury drumming gorilla but you know for the most part it's annoying but uh, it's also a necessity to 
try to make a living out of the show so that we can keep making the show and keep prioritising it, which we have been able to do more and more over the last couple of years. Well, so here we are, we're giving it a shot. Well, exactly. And, and the alternative is it that everything is state media and uh, we are all paid for mm-hmm. via your taxes instead. So, uh, I, and I actually quite like that model, but <laughs> yeah. it puts me, Great it puts me in, yeah. in quite a small minority <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and I can see why, really, because you know, it does tend to create a sort of monovocal, dangerous, quasi-fascist state. So thank you to the advertisers for making it possible for people to have freedom of speech. I know that sounds crazy. And just a little note, if you haven't already done it, Google never say no to Panda because it is the greatest TV advertising campaign okay. ever. And if you want an example of why advertising has a place in our society, it is... Never say no to Panda. There is a there is a montage of about seven of these uh, yeah. adverts, and they are all genuinely, oh, creatively brilliant. Mean, yeah. It involves a malevolent the, panda. The, yeah, which is a great starting point. Thro- throwing like, over a supermarket know, trolley and looking really malevolent because somebody yeah. hasn't put panda cheese. It's it's like blackmail <laughs> advertising at its most yeah. sophisticated, yeah. and it's very very funny, and it's meant to be very funny. A lot of things are a lot funnier when you add a panda to them. I mean, yeah. pandas are intrinsically funny, the way they sort of <laughs> crawl over things and, and, like, you know, pull in sort of liquid furry lumps on the floor, or the baby pandas. But, you know, also the South Park episode with, uh, hey, giant panda, we don't take too kindly to your type around here. <laughs> um, which, which, you know, as far as a... Um, uh, a, a snapshot of the bigoted mindset is a deeply hilarious one. It's right. called the World Wildlife. Um, that's what's going. Well, the World Wildlife Foundation or whatever it's called uh, adopted the panda mm-hmm. fund. Fund. That's the fella uh, adopted the panda, didn't they? As it as their thing, and uh, I did always mm-hmm. find that a little bit strange. I mean, because it does rather trivialise them. It seems to me that you know, I, I would I would want to sort. Of, I want I'd want the Komodo dragon as my symbol because if you're prepared mm-hmm. to preserve an animal so malevolent unpleasant mm-hmm. evil and cruel <laughs> as the Komodo dragon then you really have stopped anthropomorphizing animals and therefore see them all as equally worthy of attention which is let's face it what the World Wildlife mm-hmm. Fund is trying to do yeah and you know if if you want to keep an eye on something if you want to make sure a species is is going really really well then surely the easiest one is a monitor lizard yeah i mean they're kind of yeah you're absolutely right and who tracks the monitor lizards is there a monitor lizard monitor well, the monitors <laughs> yeah they must be who watches the watch maybe there's one at school you know like <laughs> who monitor you had like the dinner monitor didn't you and the hall monitor and uh, maybe in areas monitor, of high yeah. monitor lizard content there is a monitor lizard monitor mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, if you left one in the hall, it would stop kids leaving class. You know, oh yeah, so hell, keen to be out in the hall. Jeez, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. wasn't wasn't Tuffers uh, Phil Tufnell was chased by a monitor lizard on the outfield in Sri Lanka. <laughs> he was genuinely chased by a monitor. <laughs> well, he says chased. It moved towards him, and he took a get it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> He uh, got on his getaway sticks, oh, yeah. as I once heard an Irish fellow refer to them. <laughs> He's a wonderful man, Tuffers, but physical bravery is not necessarily in, in his mm. major wheelhouse. Look, it's it's not for all of us. Um, certainly not and, for me. It must be said, there is never. It serves it serves people in an evolutionary sense to not be brave um, most of the time. Here, here. That's why. That's be. how we're alive. Because no. we're we're we're, we're, <laughs> Running we're away. The, well, we're the sons of the people who survived the Somme or didn't bother going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah, whatnot, yeah, yeah. and Gallipoli. Although my un- my granddad actually was at Gallipoli, 
Did you know he was a coward? I say coward. I mean, it's quite brave to okay. be there in the first place. Yeah. Went over the top. Six, sure. Sixth wave. Yeah. Bangy, 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 it's bangy. Yeah. Took one look. Yeah. Right-handed man. Small pistol wound to the left shoulder. May indicate how he saw a way of... Uh, extenuating his life uh, and uh, uh, ha- having my father and then therefore having me. So, mm-hmm. yo cowardice. Well, if he'd not gone there in the first place, he might never have met my grandmother. Who knows? This mm. is where it all gets a bit sliding doorsy, mm-hmm. doesn't it? So, it's tricky. Okay. It's tricky. Yeah. I mean, bravery. Yeah, once, bravery once you're working out. Bravery and cowardice. I mean, Aristotle talks long about this. Are we going to start the cricket or am I going to talk about the Nick and McKeon no, no, ethics. Carry on. Well, there's this thing, really, isn't there, That's in fine. which bravery is, is deemed to be the halfway point between foolhardiness and cowardice. But who's mm-hmm. to judge? Who's to judge? I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of things that are really foolhardy. Spectrum. I would think it's pretty foolhardy going out to bat against, mm. well, Jasprit Bumrah. That's foolhardy. Mm-hmm. But people call it brave. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. an ongoing conversation that Aristotle didn't nail. He thought he nailed it, by turning it all into right. a scale. But actually, it's nonsensical. Until your linguists turn up and really sort of get into the deep, dark weeds of it all, then frankly, I, mm. I, I, what I'm saying is Aristotle's a showboating wanker. And what I'm saying is that uh, the other the other people who turn it into scales are monitor lizards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's all they do. Just come and eat you and turn you into scales. Beautiful. Um, yeah, look, bravery. Uh, <laughs> uh, overrated at times. And, and it's all about repetition and exposure. If you go out and bat against Jasper Boomer a lot, then it probably stops being scary because you figure out how to do it. You shouldn't start in the first yeah. place. And then, and, and it's like, you know, who no. the hell jumps then, out of a plane? Are you brave anymore? Yeah, well, but if you've jumped out of a plane a couple of hundred times, then it's no longer oh, brave. Oh, that's not brave. Out of a plane because you're not scared of it. No, that's not brave. I mean, that's, that's probably something worse. It's like a... That's greedy, I should imagine. Mm. You know. So now you want the thrills of danger without the danger. Well, as 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 Aristotle would say, there's a you know, the right path between it would be somewhere between mm. greedy, and completely. Mm. Um, what's the opposite of greedy? What's the opposite of greedy? Uh, generous. Yeah. No. No. That's like that's just being much better. Than, see, Aristotle wouldn't allow that. Because gener- gener- generosity would be, or, well, it's satiation, isn't it, we're talking about. So mm. there's greediness and there's self-denial, right? So that's what it is. You've got yes. like a scale between self-denial. Which is also greedy in a way. I mean, self-denial is, is yeah. self-flattering. Self-denial is, is emotional masturbation. You know, self-denial is making a point of the things that you're giving up so that you can feel good about them. Correct. So really, what you've just done is prove why Aristotle was a showboating wanker. As we've said, we could, hmm. we could do another hour on We Aristotle. say that all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, all right. I, w- I will just note that you're the one who gave me a, a desired finish time for the recording. Sorry. Though, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's up to you. It's up to you. I'm fine. I know. Um, I know. Right. <laughs> talking, talking about brave, the line between bravery and foolhardiness might be a good time to get into a bit of hashtag Maxwell Ball, a bit of... Glenn Maxwell action from the ODI the other night. Uh, a, a beautiful thing happened. I think it was Australia's biggest run chase against Sri Lanka. Uh, the Sri Lankans made 300 and then uh, a little bit of rain got at Duckworth down to 282 and chopped eight overs off the innings. So you, you lose 18 runs and eight overs, which still leaves a very steep task. Australia in some strife. Smith, Finch, Stoinis made 40s and 50s, but, you know, they... They weren't in a great position at five wickets down. Glenn Maxwell comes in at number seven. They need 93 off 84 balls 
Uh, and what does he do? He makes 80 of 51, not out, ends up eight wickets down, batting with Jai Richardson, jumping Jai at the other end, just trying to hang in there and, and not get bowled out. Uh, Wanindu Hasaranga, the Sri Lankan league spinner, taking wickets, as he so often does after he made runs earlier. One of the most exciting players going around at the moment. But, I mean, we remember Glenn Maxwell's 100 from number seven in England a couple of years ago uh, in that big run chase, that 329 or whatever it was against England there. Well, he's uh, done it again from number seven. They didn't leave him enough runs for him to get 100 this time, but lovely to see Glenn Maxwell knocking off a massive run chase for fun. Hit six sixes, smashed him around a, a, a fair bit and, and enjoyed himself very much indeed, it seems. The most fun about that must have been that the wickets were falling at the other end. I mean, I, I confess I didn't watch it. I mm-hmm. think it was sort of clashing with, with other commitments. But I, I mm-hmm. love it. It was just after the, the test match that he was going nuts. That was pretty much perfect timing to switch over from, you know, Glenn yeah. Maxwell on, you know, just coming into bat as the test ended. No, that was the perfect timing for me to get on a train and get the hell out of Nottingham after spending five days in a sodding, yep. notting, knocking shop and then have to do my own podcast when I got home. That's what it actually was. But I wish I had yeah. watched yeah, Glenn yeah. Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> Is your romantic, warm romantic uh, picture going to be called Knocking Hill? <laughs> Yay! Yeah, possibly. I don't think there'll ever be a romantic picture with me in it, but you never know. It's this time, isn't there? I'm only 53. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where was I? Yes. It occurred to me from looking at the scorecard, it was a kind of like the ODI equivalent of Stokes at Headingley. Did, mm. did it feel a bit like that? Like, he looked around and he thought, uh-oh, I'm just going to have to swing for the hills. <laughs> Um, I, I wouldn't say the stakes were as high. <laughs> no, well, no, <laughs> for one thing, no. But but I mean, in terms of mindset, I mean, was that was that what he was doing? Was it mm. the, the logic of the situation? Well, I don't think he because they didn't have that much time left in the game either, so there wasn't much choice from a from a, a, an overs remaining basis. But he he basically paced it perfectly, had had the reduced chase, and then killed it in the second last over rather than you know. So they they needed twenty four off a dozen balls or, or thereabouts, but then he basically got that down to, or, you know, got, got that down to 12 needed from 12. So, yeah, it was it was 24 from 18 or whatever it was, and then it was 12 from 12 and then a couple of sixes in the second last over. Um, just knocked off the chase before it became a problem. So, yeah, in, in some ways that's how it was. Let's not get to the last over. Let's not risk having the number 10 on strike and potentially getting out. Let's just make sure it's done. It's done now. Oh, glorious. Glorious. I mean, he's a, he's a beautiful man to watch, isn't he? But he does that. But also, do you not feel hmm. like I do as a, as a fan of Joss Butler? Because I know how you feel about Maxwell. I, I, feel, I have very similar mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. about Joss Butler. That when I mm-hmm. see him do wonderful things... Just a huge amount of hope and, I suppose, imagination dies with it. Is this, like, mm-hmm. why couldn't we see this with a red ball mm. on, like, I don't know, like, maybe a whole day of test cricket with Maxwell yeah. or Butler batting for all of it would be just one of mm-hmm. the most delicious delights. It'd be like bathing in the Caribbean with as much mm-hmm. rum punch as you could possibly want knowing that when you got back you could watch Severance on Apple TV, which you've refused to buy because mm-hmm. you're not getting another yeah. bloody streaming service, even though everybody keeps telling you that the very best shows on at the moment are on sodding Apple TV. It would be like that. It would be like everything, a soothing mm-hmm. balm across your entire existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a with a degree of adrenaline. Oh yeah. Thrown well, in, I like I adrenaline. Adrenaline would be like having yeah. a adrenaline bomb. It's an adrenaline bomb. Having a jet ski break in the middle of that day. Yeah, you know? I guess so. Yeah, because I just because I, I, <laughs> um, I, I resent that it's never happened. You know. I, I, mm. I wrote a piece about Joss Butler years ago in which I sort of begged people just to just ride with it. Just just don't criticise anything and wait until he wants mm. to retire, which will hopefully be when he's about 55, 60. If we just let it happen, mm. it's a bit like monkeys and typewriters, then if he plays mm. enough test cricket, there'll be the day mm-hmm. when he scores 350 in the day and it'll be fantastic. And, <laughs> and Maxwell is basically the same character, I, I think. Oh, well, same mm. character, he's the same... He, he exists yes. in the same compartment in my imagination. Yes, the same, uh, the same tantalising nature, the same, the, uh, the, all that you've seen in the partially untapped. But in terms of having adrenaline baths, you had an adrenaline bath in the second test at Nottingham. Now, I know we talked about this a lot on the dailies. If you were uh, listening to them, you'll know what happened in the match. You'll know about the crazy chase on the last day, England chasing 300 in two sessions, basically. Mm. You know, ran it down in 50 overs in the end. Uh, Johnny Bairstow going absolutely bananas. And all of the rest of it. But, you know, with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, a couple of deep breaths, yeah. uh, tell us about that week. Well, I think, like, I'm going to start at the end and the thing that's most adrenalising, I think every final word listener can can identify with this. There's a lot of, you know, oh, didn't Bairstow play brilliant innings? Wasn't it amazing that there was 59 runs in the first 20 minutes after tea? Didn't they just you know, get 160 and 16 overs to timor- untimorously break a chase that should have been really, really awkward? Wasn't it marvellous to see everybody there free, watching it all uh, in the first really warm day of the whole test match where the, the wind had gone mm-hmm. down? Balls flying into the crowd. Everyone will talk about that. They'll talk about New Zealand scoring 553 and not winning and how unfortunate that was. They'll talk about Daryl Mitchell not getting man of the match, even though he scored 252 runs in it for once out. They'll talk about the lunacy of the runouts, the madness of the way New Zealand performed in the third innings. They'll talk about Stokes on one leg. They'll talk about the sixes they've seen. They'll talk about the most boundaries hit in a test match ever. One of the highest scoring test matches the world has ever seen five day test matches especially right up there that a scoring rate of over four across the entire five days they'll talk about how this was a day a test match and an experience they'll never ever forget but not enough people not enough people will talk about although i think final word listeners were thinking only of this alex lee's scoring the most number of runs mm-hmm in a test innings before anybody else or extras had scored a run. Really? They were 29 without loss. Uh-huh. They'd all been scored by Alex Lees. <laughs> and no one has made it that far. And, and, there was, I, and I, could, I could see the final word listeners were delirious. Mm. I was. Mm. I, was an, I was an absolute mess, mm-hmm. Jeff, when that happened. And I kind of forgot about the game for a bit, really. There was just some extraordinarily explosive hitting following mm-hmm. an absurd collapse and managing to win a game mm-hmm. from four down with over 200 to win for the second time in a week when it hardly ever happens in test history. And there was a lot of psychobabble nonsense talked about uh, Baz McCullum, but deep down there were about 150 people in that crowd mm. who drifted off for about four hours yep. when they realised the significance of Lee's achievement. And that it was over, that, that the dream had ended. And Frankly, that is astonishing. I, I know that you know people start sending us Bannerman watch notes as soon as anybody's got any kind of 
score. That was never going to happen with the rest of the batting to come. But that that's a record that someone like Jayasuria never came out and bashed 30 or 40 before anybody else had scored a run. Seems completely extra, implausible. An extra, a leg, a, a leg by here, yeah. a leg by yep. there. You know, it takes. A wide, a noble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone squeezes and out I'm a And I'm saying single. it was 29, and, and I'm saying that it's true. Mm. But it's all of it second-hand right. from somebody recalling that Andy Zaltzman said it on Test Match Special. Okay. So don't blame Andy <laughs> Zaltzman if he, if he didn't say it or if the person who interpreted it interpreted it wrong because it was actually a family friend of Alex Lee's who, yep. who spoke to me about it this morning. Right. But that is the word on the street. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Uh, can I tell you what I particularly enjoyed from that Test Match? Um, it, was, it was getting a seventh Bracewell playing top flight New Zealand cricket. So if you start with John Bracewell, I don't know, senior or whatever it is, the grandfather of the Bracewell clan, he, he played for Hawke. I think, isn't it, Bre- is it, oh, is there a John, so there was a John before a Brendan, there was, was there? Yeah, yeah, John was Brendan's father. So John Bracewell played for Rangitike in the Hawke Cup. Uh, so that's not, that's not first class, that's the other province teams that didn't have first class status and they got to play in this other competition. Uh, so... You know, he he was a an accomplished enough cricketer to play at that level. Then he has four sons. Of course, he has John because if you're John, why wouldn't you want to have a son named John to keep things exciting? Uh, Brendan, of course, Douglas, and Mark yes. Bracewell. Um, two of those played Test cricket: John Bracewell and Brendan Bracewell. And then Brendan has his son Michael. And Doug Bracewell, the junior one, is the son of Mark Bracewell, I think. Uh, it gets a little confusing. There are so many Bracewells going around. But then Michael Bracewell floating in, as we said, as a 31-year-old supposed spinning all-rounder who's only been bowling for the last three years, despite having played 13 seasons of first-class cricket. Um, <laughs> and, and then getting absolutely murdered on the last day on the field, just monstered by Johnny Bairstow. It, it was... Look, I don't know if we'll see that Bracewell again, but we have seen... Three generations of seven Bracewells in pretty high-level cricket for New Zealand. I can't help thinking, if you were unfortunate enough to be, or fortunate, depending on how you feel about it, to have the Game of Thrones books recommended to you, as I was by a young producer about uh-huh. uh, nine years ago, and I was trying to find something in common, and I said, I'll give you a book that I'm reading, yeah. and you give me a book that you're reading. And he gave me Game of Thrones, and essentially what you've just basically described is the ancestral history of the Targaryens. Mm-hmm. It's the bit of the book that you can never keep in your head. Yeah. Which one's Asgar? Which one's Rhaegar? Which one's Douglas fucking Bracewell? Mm-hmm. Which one's Dougie? Because they've got a Dougie and a Doug. I mean, yep. I mean it's, it's just, it's all over the place, that family. But yet somehow they're like the cornerstone of all that is Kiwi mm. and good. Mm. I thought he was great to watch. He was so much fun. And Jared put out an insane stat, and I can't unfortunately remember it, about how many overs he'd bowled before the last three seasons. Mm-hmm. And he'd bowled something like 12 overs a year for the first eight seasons of his career, and then he bowled like 12 overs a day yeah. for the following. <laughs> I mean, that's a wild exaggeration, but... <laughs> no, no, not really, because in the, in the sort of first a, 10 seasons, <laughs> I, I, I remember some of this from looking it up. In, the first, in his first 10 seasons, he only bowled in three of them, and I think he bowled a total of maybe 48 overs in those three seasons, something like that. Yeah, it'll be something, I think that might have been it. So it might have been 16, yeah. Might be. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so then... It might have been 60. It might have been 60 over start. And he hadn't taken a wicket in those first 10 seasons. Then in his 11th season, he took a wicket. And, and so in his last three seasons, he took 27 wickets, I remember that, and had bowled 250-odd overs or something in those three seasons uh, and then suddenly was bowling in a test match. He actually turned it on a, on a road. I mean, let's be really clear about this. I, I mentioned it, I think, on, on the final word daily, but uh, the people say, oh, it's all about the uh, new... Baz McCullum, Ben Stokes mm-hmm. axis. And there's a truth to that. Mm-hmm. The truth is that they were crazy enough to try to play the way they did. Uh, and they did brilliantly to do it. But they did do it on an absolute road. It was an ODI pitch. Mm. It was like the mm. pitch that England scored 481 against yeah. Pakistan on. And like the one England the scored 480 one... against Australia on um, at the same ground. Exactly. And there was that short boundary. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, when Matt Henry started bouncing yeah. Bairstow with the short boundary on the hook shot, I was like, what? How did you not yeah. at least do it from the other end, buddy? But right, The other know, end. Yeah. Do it from the other end. Yeah. yeah. And also, don't make poor old Matt Henry do it because yeah. he's got a bumper bowler. Why didn't you think to pick Wagner in the first place? Yeah. Does no one look at stats? Mm-hmm. When Wagner plays, Bolton Southie, their averages are like six runs lower mm. than they are when he doesn't play. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was absolutely perfect for that place. Yeah. Uh, that, there was a reason why Matt Henry bowled from the from the wrong end and it was that Bolt was only bowling from the pavilion end and he was the only person providing a, a genuine wicket-taking threat. Everyone else was yeah. trying a plan in the hope that something, that, that, that English recklessness would present them with a wicket and mm. it's kind of a miracle that it didn't. That's, that's really what we're analysing is yeah. you can't keep on playing those shots ball after ball and get away with it but they did on that occasion yeah. because Again, monkeys and typewriters. They happen so, to for know, long enough. Exactly. So you get to see it when you're there that day, and that's why it's remarkable, mm. basically. But they couldn't have done that. I don't, Look, it's not that they haven't changed and they haven't got a different mindset either, because that's also true. But they would never have been able to do that at Lord's in June of last year, mm. which is the test match that everyone's comparing it with. Oh, they turned down a chase of 270-odd in mm. 75 overs. They should have tried to go for it, I said at the time, but they could never have played it the way they played it. No, of course not. That that was a pitch. I don't think that was was the comparison, but I think the comparison, which was fair enough, was coming out literally from ball one and saying we're not even going to bother trying and having Dom Sibley make 60 off 300 balls or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. That's the bit that was pathetic. It It wasn't the fact that it would have been more difficult it was not even having a shot at it when you know they needed to score at three and over for that yeah. run chase and it you'd think it could have been doable anyway uh, it was yes it put the ginger up people it, it made people feel excited and now test cricket's alive again all the people who say that it's dead every time there's a bad test match it's come back to life when there's a good one it really has like like it always does because it's absolutely brilliant and more tests are good than others let's face it the lord's test was an amazing test new zealand have been on top for much of what's happened and when we got to the denouements it's become very surprising that England have got over the line to win Mm -hmm. and that's sort of made them interesting and fun test matches but there was more to it than that there was Trent Bolt genuinely hugging Daryl Mitchell beautifully when he went past the record for the most number of runs scored by number 11 and I loved that Mm. because that's such a like final word listener kind of thing to do as well is to be so like in tune with a stat, which is quite a shabby one, isn't it? Really, mm. I've been around so long, but 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 then at the same time not because he's smashed Murali's record in mm-hmm. way fewer innings, mm-hmm. 
Well, he's also got the third. He's got the third best average all time of anyone who's batted at number eleven for more than twenty innings. Yeah. So he's actually made. He's averaged sixteen and a half at, at number eleven, which is you know it's pretty really good, good going. It is. It's, well, he's basically the batter that Stuart Broad wishes he'd become, hmm. <laughs> which, which tells you something. Uh, and they, the, both both tails in both innings was were, were so broadly speaking not inept, but they were always going to play in a certain hmm. way that you knew that the game would speed up. Yeah, like it wasn't like watching the remorseless Australians in the early two thousands, where you get them five down, and you go, "Yes, we've got another five hours to go." Paul Rifle will somehow hang around. Anybody would hang around in that Australian team because it was the right thing to do and that's how you win cricket matches. Mm -hmm. What I love about England and Australia's tail is they go out to bat and go, it's not my job. It's not my job. (laughs) And broadcasters go, yes, come on. (laughs) Give us a wicket. And you know you're going to get it. Uh. So they they were enormously entertaining. There were some incredible overthrows. There were some incredible runouts. I mean, the the whole game was absolutely batshit. And it was played by one team I thought was better, but actually I think might be coming down on a crest, New Zealand. And one team that I thought was worse that has employed just massive Mm risk-taking to see what happens and it's so far it's worked for them too <laughs> it's kind of fun <laughs> alright it's time for us to play a little game that we call mm, Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge uh, it is uh, the game of the nerds of the internet here's how it works uh, we have listeners who support the show by sending us contributions they fund the program with numbers that are not normal denominations of currency they're very specific configurations of currency because the number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what that number means. For instance, Alan Simpson is our nerd pledger this week with £1.88 in the British sterling. So the number is 1.88, it could mean 18.8, could mean 188, could mean any number of variations on those three digits. He's also sent through a clue for Daniel which says as follows, a milestone test produced the most remarkable day's cricket I've ever seen. 188, what do you think? Well, obviously I began that it's in GBP. This mm-hmm. was important to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I thought, aha, uh, this might have something to do with... It. He was there, so it's going to be a test match in England. Doesn't mean he's an England fan, but it's an English test match. Mm-hmm. Milestone, mm, well, so I started with 18-8, the 18th of August. Oh, of course, famously, okay. on the 18th of August... 18th of August, the two-day test match took place. It's a truly extraordinary game that took place at Leeds on the 17th and 18th of August, in which West Indies played England. They scored 172 in 48.4 overs. game was rattling along. Mm-hmm. Lots of very happy broadcasters at that point. Top scorer Ramnaresh Sarwan with 59 not out. I mean, it was a pretty flaky West Indies side by that stage. You've got Sherwin Campbell, Adrian Griffith, Wavell Hines. Mm. Then you've got the powerhouses of Lara, Adams, Sarwan. Uh, Curtly Ambrose still playing. Courtney Walsh is still playing. So he can still, still bowl. Rion King's playing. Mm-hmm. He, he terrified the crap out of me in a game against old Midwick Giftians many years ago when I turned up for the first 11 because they were one short and he bowled. Well, I don't know if they were rockets, but I didn't see them. Mm. Craig White was playing for England. He took Pfeiffer. He always had oh, Brian yeah. Lara's number. You remember he used to bowl him behind his legs. Darren Goff. Dominic Cork, Andy Caddick. Pretty good seam bowling lineup mm-hmm. when you look at England's current seam bowlers. And 
and in, in a reasonable stage of their careers. England replied with 272, 76 from Vaughan. They had been in big trouble at 96 for 5, 124 for 6 when Night Watchman Andy Caddick went. But uh, a, rare, a rare half century, not that rare, but rareish from Graham Hick, 59 in partnership with Michael Vaughan, got England up to 272. And then the madness happened. West Indies bowled out for 61. Caddick with four and over. All the weird stuff, you remember? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, yes. They yeah. show it over and over again. Four, that's right. So yeah. I'm looking at this. Four in the over, which is... So I'm looking at this. Which is up there as a record, I think. It is up there. So then I'm thinking, how do I shoehorn a milestone into this? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at all these players, and there's no meaningful milestone. Mm-hmm. There's no Leeds milestone. Mm-hmm. But it feels so right, because he's talking about it being a, basically a batshit day's cricket. Mm-hmm. Surely, being there when when it ends in two days, that's batch it. Okay, I can't make it work. So, I go in search of... I go back to the milestones, Mm -hmm. and I search for the 100th Test match at Lord's. Mm -hmm. And in a bizarre quirk of fate, I was sent to a Test match, which I looked at extensively. It was one in which um, Kevin Peterson made an unbeaten double 100, 202, he batted for a long time with Matt Pryor. Right. Really quite a long time. England scored 474 for eight. India made 286. England won relatively comfortably. I'm looking around for this, trying to find when it was really exciting. Matt Pryor and Stuart Broad did put on, weirdly, a seventh wicket partnership of 165 in the second innings. It's not 188. I looked at the number of balls they did it in. It wasn't 188. Mm. I checked further back in the game. I thought, hang on a minute, I might have got it. I mm-hmm. might have got it. So, Kevin Peterson is batting with Ian Bell. Okay. From the 61.1 overs, 61.12 overs to 92.1. I'm going, hang on, that's 184 balls. Mm-hmm. How many wides, or five balls, how many wides and no balls were there? There were two. I checked the ball by ball record. They happened during the partnership. Mm-hmm. But no shit. Hmm. It's 187. That's okay. not 188. No, different numbers. It's not 188, right? Different numbers. Hmm. He wouldn't get it that wrong. And how exciting was that partnership? Let's be honest. There was 110 runs. When you said Ian Bell, I, I wasn't balls. excited. You know, I didn't think like, oh, that must well, have been one of the most high-octane sessions of cricket. You might think that. And, and yeah, it would be reasonable for you to think that. So then I check again and I realise that actually... That wasn't the 100th Test match at Lords. Okay. I've been slipped at Mickey mm. by Google. <laughs> Michael Google, Which sent me down a, a, an impossible path. Instead, instead, when I really found out what the 100th Test match at Lords was, I was sent to a match between England and the West Indies. Mm-hmm. Again. Mm-hmm. Right? In the year 2000. Fascinating Test match. Mm-hmm. The West Indies... Scored 267 in their first innings. Quite gloomy weather, I remember it, throughout. 82 from Sherwin Campbell, only 6 from Lara, 59 from Wavell Hines. Mm-hmm. So it's going okay then. Similar bowling attack for England. Cork, Goff, Caddick, Cork, mm-hmm. Hoggard, Craig White, bit of Michael Vaughan. 267 all out. But overnight, is this starting to ring a bell now? Overnight, mm-hmm. the West Indies were 267 for nine in their first innings. Yep. At the end of the second day, England were naught for naught from 1.1 overs in their second innings. Four seasons in one day, uh-huh. baby. 
We got a snatch of all four innings in one day of a test match. Oh, right. hello. Is this starting to, starting to ring a bell? Uh-huh. Starting to yeah, ring a bell? Yeah. You're still wondering where 188 comes yes. in. This. Where's the 188? So England had a terrible first innings. They were bundled out for 134. Uh-huh. Ambrose and Walsh doing the damage, four wickets each. Stewart top scoring with 28. Uh-huh. It's a very 1990s score, really, 28, 27, sure. that kind of thing. But he made it to 28, I suppose, indicating that things were going to get better. <laughs> and the West Indies, with this huge lead yeah. of 133, huge lead. Yeah. I mean, they've basically got the game, haven't they? They are eviscerated in 26.4 overs for just 54 runs. Five wickets for Andy Caddick, five for 16, three for 13 from Cork, two for 12 from Darren Goff. Top scorer was Ridley Jacobs with 12. No one else got double figures. Shivran Chadable with nine and extras with nine were the closest, mm. of which eight were leg buyers. And so England went out to bat at the end of that day. As I've told you, they were naught for naught at the end of the day, yeah? What do you reckon the target was to win? I suppose if you added 50-odd to 130-odd, it was probably 188. The target was 188. <laughs> And then the rest of the game, England win. They win it. They win it by two wickets. It's an absolutely incredible day's cricket. I don't know if our man went there the following day. Uh, Afton forty-five, Vaughan forty-one, top scorers. Dominic Cork getting England over the line with thirty-three not out. The ninth wicket partnership put on thirty-one to get there. Mm-hmm. To get there, mm-hmm. and maybe it was that day that he was at. I don't know. Was it that day he was at, or was it the day where all four innings, all four innings? Uh-huh had some part of their innings on one day. I think that, I think that was it. England was set 188. I'm sure that Ellen Simpson would have been there on that uh, penultimate day that set up the 188, 188 to win, and that is what, what would have stayed in his mind because surely, Alan, that is the right answer. You can let us know. Get on the Final Word chat page on, on Discord and there's a Nerd Pledge channel there or send us a DM on the old Patreone. If you want to send us a number, you go to patreon.com slash word, and in doing so, you can help support the show and be on the show. Right, it is time for the aforementioned foreshadowed mid-program break and we'll be back in just a second. Hi everyone, you're listening to The Final Word. It's Ishigua here with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Daniel Dorcross uh, hosting with me this week and looking very pleased with himself, doing a lap of his room basically after nailing that nerd pledge. Very confident, very confident. I, I am confident, I am confident. Mm-hmm. If, if it's not that, yep. Alan Simpson... Then what? Then... <laughs> What the hell is it's it? It's not that. There's no what? famous 188s. There's nothing. I've, yeah. I've done it all. I've checked everything. There's nothing. All right. All right. All right. We're, we're, we're going to take your word for it until we hear otherwise from Ellen. A big day a couple of days ago, Daniel, in the blind cricket world. Stefan Nero, who does sound imperial with that name, <laughs> made 309 from 140 balls playing for Australia against New Zealand, it was the first triple century ever made in blind cricket. It was the, uh, it is the world record score. I, I have it on good authority that he declared overnight level with Bradman so as not to go past the great man <laughs> on 309. Uh, no, that was not the case. It was in a 40-over match. They play 40-over ODIs and, and they're playing the International Inclusion Series at the moment, which has the blind teams, the deaf teams and the intellectual disability teams all 
playing in their relevant divisions up against one another. And uh, the blind cricket record that was previously about 260, and it's been smashed by Stefan Nero, who's also made 100 in his previous two innings for Australia in the same series. So he's gone, you know, regulation ton, regulation ton, and then 309 not out in 40 overs. But that is absolutely prodigious, isn't it? I mean, we've got to find out what he's doing. Yeah. That's, like, because he's the Bradman of blind cricket. <laughs> I'm, and with a name like Stefan Nero, mm-hmm. I mean, Stefan Nero, that is, that's quality. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 we were talking about it in, actually in the SEN box the other day. Going, uh, someone's got 300 in blind cricket. And Jared, being Jared, said, is that a lot? I don't know. I don't know about blind cricket. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that a, is that a large score in blind cricket? Maybe loads of people get 300. So, Jared, I think it, it, it feels like a lot. Otherwise, blind cricket's going to... You're going to chase a lot of leather. Yeah, otherwise. yeah, yeah. Well, you, you do. I mean, I think, like, large-ish scores aren't necessarily unusual for for certain players. So, so it's, it's, it's parceled up in, yeah. in a couple of different ways in that... So in, in blind cricket, each team has to have a minimum number of B1 players who are the... If, if you follow the Paralympics, you start to pick up on some of the terminology. So mm-hmm. they're the, the completely blind players and there's a there's a, a, a minimum cap of B1 players and then you can have partially blind players, partially sighted players of varying degrees and there are sort of limits on the number of overs that have to be bowled by B1 vol- bowlers versus others and different rules for catching as well. If you're a B1 player, you can take a catch on the bounce because the, the ball has a... has auditory aids Bell. in it yeah it has or it, it has sort of shifting ball bearings these days i think but it's something yeah, that makes it, a noise yeah. which means that you can if you're if you're unsighted completely you can pick it up on the bounce as a catch sort of backyard cricket style um if you're a partially sighted player you catch it on the full but yeah so i, I, I watched back most of these innings um, just to see how it unfolded and yeah it, it, it's interesting how the blind cricket system works. They've got the larger stumps, like some taller stumps, and they're very fluorescent, so the partially sighted players can see it. The umpire's wearing a high-vis vest as well for that reason. And then the fully blind players orient themselves by touching the stumps, the bowlers and the batters, to work out where they are and how to face. And then the ball's bowled underarm, um, sort of rolling along the pitch or bouncing along the pitch underarm, and has to uh, has to bounce a couple of times if it's bouncing. Or, or uh, I, I read some rules that said you're not allowed to roll it, but players in this match were definitely rolling it, um, sort of lawn bowl style, to try to you know get a bit of curve on it or, or, or get it through the player who's at the other end who's listening for the ball and and then playing a shot to the ball and and almost all of the time they'll play a sweep shot because the ball's coming along the ground so they can get down low and hit it to the leg side and one thing that really works for Stefan Nero is that he's perfected the reverse sweep as well so brought the offside into play completely and often took balls from outside leg stump and reverse swept them and then you know often the the ball will go down leg side and then he'd chase those and catch up with them on the sweep shot he did play some straight bat shots as well he's obviously confident enough and, and adept enough to sometimes hit it through cover or through mid-on with a straight bat. But for the most part, it's this cross-bat technique of getting low and making sure that, you know, that you've got the best chance of making some contact with the ball. Makes sense. That's, that's a, I, I'd like to think how I'd do it. Mm-hmm. But 300 in 44 o- 40 overs, yeah. that is... That, that's something else. So the rever- the reverse was, the, was I imagine, would be an incredibly important weapon mm-hmm. in blind cricket. I'm not as familiar with blind cricket as I am with learning disability in deaf cricket, which is part of this series, I believe. Right. And 
that's going kind of like the other way the learning disability England team are now 6-1 up I believe mm-hmm. or they were the last time I looked and the the deaf team was 4-2 up at my last update and there it's you're basically you're just watching cricket as you would expect to watch cricket mm-hmm. There's, the balls are the same the stumps are the same mm-hmm. the, the kits are the same the players are astoundingly good I mean really tremendous but the, mm. it's it's totally recognisably cricket in in the way that blind cricket is, is very different. We, yeah. we had a demonstration of it during a test match special game, I think. And it has to be, of course, because you know, people can't see the ball. And it was a blind person that actually got me into cricket commentary, I think I've mentioned to you. Mm. I commentated for a blind person and he said, uh, uh, he said, tell me what's happened to this ball. And I said, well, he's, he's cut it down to third man. And I said, I, he said, I know he's cut it down to third man. Is there a third man? <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I didn't say, look, we don't really like to use gender terms like that. We we would say deep third because it was 1988. Um, but, <laughs> but It was I, a different I time said, back then. It was a different time. It was a different era. No, no you can't judge them by the standards of the I current said, era. No, no, it was a different era. I said, what the actual, hmm. and etc. And, uh, and so I tested it. I said, well, if you're, so, if you're so clever, you tell me where the ball's gone <laughs> for the next six balls. He perfectly accurately told me what had happened to the ball. <laughs> he just didn't know if there was a fielder there. <laughs> Marvellous. I mean, it's it's absolutely it's incredible. It's truly incredible what what uh, blind people can do with their ears. Yeah, yeah, and and incredible how so. Stefan Nero is partially sighted, and he was explaining that one of the hardest things is because he can't see fully. He's got to really strain to try to get some flicker of the ball to be able to see the ball out there at all to, to try to play a shot in its general direction and, and how taxing that is, sort of straining his eyes, which he doesn't normally do because he doesn't normally rely on the sight that he has as mm. much, uh, but but having to try to do it out there. So 309 for him. Congrats to Stefan Nero on his world record. Uh, congrats to the Board of Cricket Control of India for their world record. $6.2 billion for five years of IPL. Uh, that's Roughly 50-50 for TV broadcasting and for digital broadcasting. So the digital component is getting bigger and bigger. Um, that ends up being about 14 million US dollars per match for the upcoming IPLs per per match played, which they're keen to let you know is the second most in the world behind the American NFL football uh, what, who's he what's it where they only play a dozen games a season and somehow it's worth everybody smashing themselves in the head for forever but 14 million a match this this whole sort of angst and dynamic over the last decade about the increasing power of the IPL and uh, how it's it's going to dominate world cricket well there is no question now I mean, there, there already wasn't but this just reinforces it that the IPL will do whatever the fuck it wants from here because it can pay everybody who it wants to far more than they could possibly get by uh, trying to go against it in any way yes but they've always been able to do that mm. so what is the Just fear even more really is the, is, it's, not the, it's not a fear is, is the, but it's is, a, is, it's going to happen the, the IPL will will own cricket Yes, but it's what does that mean and look like? Mm. Because ultimately, there are an awful lot of people who play cricket mm-hmm. who aren't playing in the IPL. Yep. So there will be other cricket taking yep. place. And I suppose, you know, the concern that traditional lovers of all forms of cricket would have is what if the IPL just grew and grew and grew until it became like 
the English Premier uh-huh. League football season. Yeah, with four weeks off a year. Of the IPL. Yeah. You know, exactly. Is that the fear? And it's a legitimate fear to have. I think it's possibly catastrophizing a bit too far because unless the IPL develops four divisions and actually bothers to employ Pakistanis as well, there's going to be an enormous number of very good cricketers who are going to be playing cricket in tournaments that people are going to be watching. If it stays at eight weeks, then all that really happens is that everybody around it gets paid an awful lot more. And my Mm. understanding of capitalism is that the people who own the clubs will get paid more. And the people who play will get paid more at the highest level. But Mm -hmm. the people at the very bottom of the IPL player roster will probably not get paid a great deal more. Mm -hmm. And there are 10 teams. And that's 180, 220 cricketers, Mm -hmm. something like that. There's an awful lot of other cricketers. So, yeah, it's it's brilliant for the IPL. It's absolutely fantastic. Is it going to change everything else that we do? Does it mean that, news, that test cricket will never happen again? Does it mean that Pakistan cricketers, what, will they go off and have to set up a kind of breakaway league where the mm. rules are entirely different? Just, there's hundreds of millions of Pakistanis. They're a very fertile ground as well, you know. And uh, there's, there's money in, in their cricket. So... Mm. I sort of just I, I find business stories intensely tedious. If money's funneled into players to become a bit richer, I don't really care. As long as it only takes up eight weeks of the year, mm. then it's no different from what it was before. And I will still gladly commentate on it and instantly forget who it was that won it. <laughs> Um, yeah, it does have that that uh, tears lost in rain sort of quality in, as far as the actual matches go. Um, I'm sure there are some people out there who can remember every RCB result that was ever played. But yeah, maybe yeah. R- maybe RCB actually, maybe RCB because they're like you know they they are they are that the, the perennial. They're a story. They're yeah. like Somerset. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the if you're a Chennai Super fan, do you really remember any of it? Mm. If you're a Mumbai Indians fan, mm-hmm. you just like love being a Mumbai Indians fan. Mm. You can't remember any of it. <laughs> um, I think I think that look, I don't want to be a, cont- a catastrophizer, but the part of me that goes ugh instead of yay to this story is basically that. They've just expanded. They've just gone two extra teams, how many extra games, two extra weeks. You know, the things got bigger. And right at the point that a season in which it got bigger has concluded, they've sold it for twice as much money, which would give the lesson if you are an endless growth person, which, and you may say, uh, you know, endless growth would be unsustainable. And guess what? It is, uh, you know, economically, ecologically, <laughs> from a planetary standpoint. And yet, most of the people who run our, um, countries, businesses, organisations tend to think that endless growth is the only model and that you must always be getting bigger, otherwise you're dying. So there is nothing in this that would suggest to anybody running the IPL that we shouldn't try to add another couple of teams in a couple of years and that we shouldn't try to get more and more of those players and that we shouldn't be three months instead of two and then, yeah, you can get into the slippery slope bullshitness of that. But I think to a point... It's realistic that they will keep wanting to expand because this this only uh, encourages that desire towards expansion. Uh, I think there's a very good chance that it will do that. I don't know what... I still don't yet quite know what that will mean. I, I, I find it very hard to believe that the cricketing landscape of Pakistan, Australia and England will just find itself like Stepford Wives mm. gazing dribblingly 
at another game of baseball, basically, being played in a country that they've never been to, mm. watching a, a vast number of people getting rabidly excited by yet another six mm. played in the 24th of 32 games that are going to be played mm. in the league season by that particular team mm. uh, and not actually yearn for... Oh, well, maybe, maybe that's it. There'll be a lot of yearning. There'll be a lot of yearning, mm -hmm. a lot of disappointment, mm -hmm. and it'll all be so bleak and so desperately monocultural that all of cricket will just eventually be the IPL. And that might well be the future for mankind. I'd, I'd take a slightly more optimistic view, which is that, you know, things are much, much worse in the 15th century than they are now. <laughs> so I, I think things do get a bit better yeah. with blips. And with, you know, yeah. humps along the road. Ups and downs. And there's a kind of correcting mechanism to it. And we're not all so globalised that we're just going to have virtual glasses on. We can transport you to Bangalore, mm. where you can have the VIP experience from your own bedroom in Tooting of watching the Royal <laughs> Challengers against some newly confected team that's been created. Yep. <laughs> Tonight, <laughs> the, you the are Kyron Pollard. Side. <laughs> yeah, you know. Maybe that's the future. Mm. I don't know. Mm. And if it is, I mean, I'm not going to look silly by not imagining it. I just, I won't care by then because I'll be dead. That's true. That is one way of looking at it. And, uh, and, and a comfort to all of us at various times when we contemplate the future. It's a comfort future. to a lot of people, yeah. the idea of my death. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the, the idea of uh, demise in general, the, the, uh, the greatest punishment would be to be forced to live forever. Like the, uh, the character in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy who's tried to destroy himself in every possible way. Yep. Now, another thing, another up and down along the road and, and something that would have brought you enjoyment was Moeen Ali saying that he is officially out of retirement. He's coming back. He's Tony Lockett in the forward pocket. He's uh, shaved the head. He's ready to go. Sorry, that's a football reference. You won't get that one. Um, that's fine. Look, this, nine months after he retired formally from Test cricket, uh, he's still playing white ball cricket for England. He's in the white ball squad to go to Netherlands. Uh, they're probably already there to play those three ODIs that are about to come up. But he said he's spoken with Brendon McCullum about coming back for Test cricket. He said that playing under uh, McCullum and Stokes as captain would suit his own playing style more and a sort of aggressive counter-punching style. And also I think that touring Pakistan would be a big draw on a personal basis, a bit like it was for Usman Khawaja, uh, touring there for Australia, the fact that Moen's of Pakistani extraction, he's got a lot of relatives over there and so on, it would be a kind of homecoming to be able to go to Pakistan, you know, play as that second spinner and, and lower order bat in that England team and, and give them that option. But it, it's good news because Moen playing test cricket makes a lot of people happy. Oh, it, of course it does. I mean, because he's such a lovely, lovely man. I mean, people always say this and then, you know, lunatic on Twitter say, well, you're just trying to be woke. He, not just trying to be woke, he just is a lovely man. If you spend any time with him, he's so generous, kind, thoughtful, very dry, very, very funny, and way more importantly than that is a person who would balance England's need mm. to have a tail that doesn't have four number 11s in it, someone who could bat with Ben Folks, who is clearly a very good wicketkeeper, and someone who actually turns the ball and has taken mm. over 190 wickets. He's, he's England's third leading spinner of all time, isn't right. he, behind Underwood and Swan? Yeah. He's ahead and of And not Laker. by much, so, you know, only by 40 or 50 runs. He's just... Sorry, wickets. <laughs> ...the obvious candidate. And you look at that side and you go, do you remember, 
when England used to have too many all-rounders and they didn't know where to bat people, so Wokes was occasionally down at 10 because Broad and Anderson weren't both fit at the same time. Mm. And uh, Moe and Ali was shunted down to nine. And, he, and he's such a... I worked with him during the Ashes on BT and I worked with him in the last Test match. And he's a very good teaser. Like, people don't get this. So he's just teasing Alistair Cook about how, you know, you may be bat everywhere from one to nine. And he just does it with a little wry grin. He's not, like, having an actual go. And everyone mm. goes, oh, it's all a bit awkward, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it oh, a feud. A oh, feud has broken out. Oh, feud. Yes. It's nothing of the sort. They're Disgruntled I mean, so former gentle. test player Moeen Ali has slammed <laughs> his former captain, Alistair Cork, in a devastating display on live television. You got it. Yeah. And, well, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the uh, the insight that I got. Mm. So we had the clean feed from the studio during mm-hmm. the Ashes when Cookie came in and he'd, and he'd flown in from uh, the West Indies on holiday and had gone straight into a game. So he had no sleep and he was going through the night. And it was the tea break break. Mm-hmm. So in England, that's I can't remember four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. No, five o'clock in the morning. You're dog tired. Mm-hmm. It's cold. It's black as night because it is night because it's December, January and he just sleep took over him and he felt he just fell asleep on the, on the sofa the sofa that they were then going to go back to after tea interval you know go Matt Smith would go hey so I've got Moe and Ali I've got Alistair Cook mm-hmm. to digest this session and there's Cookie fast asleep and Moe and I can see this and we can hear it from the green room you know skip skip Skip, Alistair, got to wake up, got to wake up. We're on in a minute. Alistair, skip, cookie, cook, cookie. <laughs> it was really lovely. So Jenny didn't, he really didn't want to alarm him, but cookie was really quite asleep. And, <laughs> but he sort of, he roused him uh-huh. in the most gentle, kind way. So any anybody who imputes any animus into this relationship... Yeah. I promise you, if if there is there, then I, they're both brilliant actors, and he and he balances England side. And I really like Jack Leach as a person. I genuinely do, and I really like what he could do as a second spinner in India. But and I know it wasn't a great example because it was a road. He shouldn't have been picked to play on a one-day road. No spinner really should have had to endure that complete hell. But he didn't get any turn. Didn't get any res. He beat the bat three times, I think, from memory. And he's bowling to a lot of right-handers from round the wicket. Mm. The rough was never happening. There's a reason why England didn't pick a spinner, or Jack Leach, most importantly, for the last couple of years. And it's because he doesn't contribute really a great deal with the bat, except, I know, don't come at me, but he doesn't, mm-hmm. really, apart from Ireland and one not out. And Moeen Alley turns the ball, has taken over 190 wickets and can bat and has test hundreds. So it's really a no-brainer that England should want him back in. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think, an insight into... I'm not going to have a go at previous regimes, but I think it was probably just difficult being Moeen Ali. In, the, in a way that KP said, it's, it's hard being me. I don't <laughs> think he really had any idea what hard was like when you compare it to mm. batting literally from one to nine. Are you a spinner? Are you a batter? Are you a whatever? You're, all, mm. you're up and down, you're all over the place and you do that for your entire career and yet you've got dead good numbers. Mm. He's, got, he's got a test hat-trick for God's sake. <laughs> I love Jack Leach. Is he going to get a test hat-trick? <coughs> Come on. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, just logic mm-hmm. kind of screams 
mowing and and then there's all the all the stuff that you say but you you went to pakistan i mean it, they're not spinning wickets are they i mean they're just no. basically flat and tough well they? you know the spinners aren't gonna make the difference are they they may be on the last day um that's the only the only possibility is you know we spent the entire karachi test waiting to see whether it would break up you know it, it was it was waiting for Godot stuff at some point on the fifth day it will start to break up and it didn't really you know it was still like it 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 played some tricks, but it was still solid enough to bat on that, that Barbara Azam batted through most of the day. And Mohammad Rizwan crashed 100 at the end just for fun. So, you know, and, and it did break up a bit more in Lahore, but the, I mean, the Islamabad pitch was a, should have been reported to The Hague. And <laughs> as far as the rest of it goes, it, basically you want spinners because they can bowl more overs without their arms falling off because your fast bowlers can't. Yeah. I uh, can't take that sort of workload, so it becomes a, an attritional thing. It's going to be hard graft for him if he does go to Pakistan. Uh, but he's in the white ball squad. He's going to Amsterdam first uh, as, as their first stop. They're probably yes. already there. They've picked a decent side to do this. So Owen Morgan's going, Jason Roy's in there, David Milan, Joss Butler, Liam Livingston, the big hitter. There's kind of the, the, the big batting battery. Phil Salt will presumably open the batting because Johnny Bairstow's not there. Moen's there, Adil Rashid's there, David Willey's there, Sam Curran's there. So firepower aplenty. Um, and, and one thing that jumped out that was a good news story was Mark Elaine getting a coaching gig as the assistant coach. So this is Matthew Mott's first assignment in charge of England's white ball teams. And Mark Elaine is someone who spoke really strongly a couple of years ago about the lack of opportunities for black coaches in England. He's still the only black man who was ever a county head coach. That was for four years from 04 to 07, and that was it. It hadn't happened before, it's never happened again. And he was very strong on that at the time about how uh, disgraceful that was, was his description that there, there'd been so few opportunities for black coaches. Uh, so he's got the assistant gig with England. He's coaching the batting and uh, he's going to be over there with the white ball squad while they've got the test squad doing their own thing uh, with the third test to come against New Zealand. It's a really great appointment. Uh, I've met him a few times and th- he's a very unassuming and softly spoken guy publicly I think as a coach, he's hard as nails. Mm. And as captain of Gloucestershire, he led them through uh, a, a series of white ball triumphs. I mean, Gloucestershire was the place mm. to play, like Neil Harvey with Mark Elaine, with Jack Russell, you know, a bit of Courtney Walsh thrown in. It was, I'm, I'm going to guess it was, was Ian Harvey rather side. than Neil Harvey. Ian Harvey, <laughs> yes, it was Ian Harvey, yes. <laughs> Neil wasn't so fast on his feet by then. Yeah, he's done a decent job, I yeah. think. He played it off the pitch. <laughs> he was a, he was a great captain. He's a great thinker of the game. Uh-huh. And actually, you know, Gloucestershire, their chairman is Sid Lawrence. They've they've got a black chairman. Mark Allane has been their captain. There have been very many black captains mm. of sides over the years as well. So it's a little bit of kudos there for Gloucestershire. Who knows how it'll pan out? Um, that side going out to the Netherlands feels a bit like overkill but actually you know that's going to really incentivize the dutch isn't it mm-hmm. so I, I spoke to the scorer today who said she'd like prepared lots of highest scores things and you know most number of runs conceded mm-hmm. and i know why she's done it and she's right to do it but you know there's a little bit of complacency going on there and i think the dutch will just they'll, they'll come after the english it'll be interesting to see i'd be fascinated to see what happens at the toss is Owen Morgan actually going to 
because he's a canny bugger, mm. recognises banana skin and put them in if he wins the toss mm. every time. You know, be much happier chasing 180 and just knocking them off yeah. than going out to bat, feeling the onus to entertain and yeah. then smashing it to all parts. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's going to be interesting. One of the other interesting <laughs> things from a purely professional point of view will be that I was told today, this might be a wild exaggeration, that there are 12 seats in the press tent. Oh, good. <laughs> that includes the, the broadcasters. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And the scoreboard at the ground doesn't work. Now, I've no idea, again, if, mm. if, if that's true or if it'll be rectified in time. I'm, I'm presuming it's not, because that would be truly hilarious. Mm. If you don't know what the score is, as a spectator well you won't know as a player so you won't have a clue what you're doing maybe they just unless you're very good at counting just need to employ some pitch siders to you know because they can sit around in their hoodies with their seven phones in the pocket and just shout out the score really loudly and then everybody else can well, listen in it's funny you should mention that because she, she the woman I spoke to did recommend to the uh, the Dutch cricket board that they have people who would retrieve the balls hit towards the canal oh yeah I've never never been to Amstel Vane Collo's out there (laughs) so they can get the ball and get it back otherwise there could be too many lost balls now all of this is assuming that Uh Liam Livingston is going to go berserk and Jason Roy is going to go berserk I I just actually think it's brilliant for European cricket as much as anything else Mm. an England team going and doing a full three ODI tour that's that's fun I mean we haven't had that before so you know, it's between test matches. It's going to be televised. The England white ball team is a good one. Um, it, it could be a banana skin. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there but is. I think I'm, I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to the series. I, I, I wish I'd gone, but TalkSport got the rights. Fair play to them, but you know. <laughs> Damn you bastards. <laughs> but I, I think it, it's, it's good that England have sent this team because, you know, had they sent a... Um, a slightly weaker team, then that would have been complacency, and they would have absolutely deserved to be knocked off. So you know, if they yeah. if they win here, then uh, it's 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 as it should be. And if the Dutch are able to Jeff, knock them off, Owen then Mor- Owen Morgan is Owen Morgan's never going to allow that to happen. No. He's never going to go and send me over with a third team. You know, yeah. he, this is his team. Sure, he, he believes in this white ball. Yeah, and they haven't it's played a for a while. Thing. You know, they haven't exactly. got together for. A There's been very few. Very few ODIs mm. that England have played in the last 12 months. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, it's pitiful. It's like three or five or something daft. Yeah. So he's going to get he's going to get the gang back together and he's going to have fun. And they'll be in Amsterdam. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, in, indeed. And they, they lost to Ireland uh, not all that long ago as well. Um, the Irish women have not been going so well against the South African women. They've lost that ODI series 2-0 already. But uh, a note for Gabby Lewis, who's ever more the emerging star for Ireland, um, made her second half century in the series. And she's carrying that Irish team, but they've been outclassed. And uh, interesting as well that Afghanistan have knocked off Zimbabwe 6-0 across formats, three T20s, three one-dayers, in Harare. So away from home, six games. They've done it chasing. They've done it setting. They've knocked off Zimbabwe every time. It seems to further underscore this uh, crossing trajectory of the, the Afghanistan team able to at least maintain its standard, if not keep getting better, despite everything that's going on back home for them and uh, the Zimbabwean team being unable to compete now with a team that's still an emerging side rather than one of the, the top established sides. Yeah, it, it, I'm delighted for the players. I'm, and Afghanistan cricket continues to thrive. 
I'm very troubled by this, Jeff, yeah. and I don't know because I don't really know what to think. This happens to me a lot, incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes have things around which I can't formulate a settled judgment or opinion. But there is no Afghan women's team. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that if if England had said we're not going to field a women's team because we don't think women could, should play cricket, yep. there might be a bit of an issue coming and might playing Might be a England. bit of blowback. Uh, there, and I would yeah. like to think there would be. Yeah. There might be a little bit. And yet at the same time, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I don't want Rashid Khan and the like to play cricket for uh, internationally so I, I, I don't know what to think I don't know what to think except that, I, that something something is rotten mm. and I don't know what to think yeah <laughs> help it, me it, well and, and we have talked about this on on the show a few times in that there's there isn't a good answer to the question but it's it stands out given Greg Barclay's comments the other week that we talked about the the ICC chair basically saying that, well, Afghanistan had an exemption before the Taliban took over to be part of the ICC because they didn't have a women's team yet. And so what was happening now was just a continuation of the same arrangement and that therefore the ICC would just carry on and you know allow them to keep being part of ICC events and so on. The very obvious giant hole in that being that before the Taliban took over, the Afghanistan board was moving towards having a women's team. They'd started to get some players on board. They were doing training camps. They hadn't played matches yet, but they were going to. There was a, a path to that, and there no longer is. And 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 I, I have been swayed by the argument that this cricket team is one of not too many really good things going for Afghanistan, you know, a, a country where mm-hmm. life has been very tough for a very long time, and that denying people that is a is a bad thing to do and that denying these players the chance to play is a bad thing to do. Uh, it was a, a point made by one of our listeners, actually, Mel Shawley, who said that during the 70s it was, it was very sad for some great South African cricketers that they couldn't play international cricket, but they lived in a country that had an apartheid regime and there was a reason why they were not allowed to play. It was a reason bigger than them. And you can look at Afghanistan in the same way. There is an apartheid within Afghanistan against women, that women shouldn't be yep. able to study, that they shouldn't be able to leave the home, that they should have to be under the care and supervision of men at all times and that they should face violent consequences if they don't go along with this r- ridiculously heavy-handed approach. So if that is the case, then how can you justify having those players, no matter how lovable and great and good they are and, and how much we all love watching Rashid Khan play and all of the rest of it, how much we've all enjoyed the Afghanistan story. If like those those players are representing a country whose ideals are currently that half of their population is inferior and and, and must be subjugated, how do you justify that? And and I think seen in that way, it is a lot harder to justify. I agree. I, I'm not sure that I'd use the word inferior. I, I think within the twisted logic of the Taliban they would argue that it's not about inferiority, it's about appropriateness. Mm. It doesn't make it any better, does it? This is what I mean. I don't know. I don't mm. know what to think. I think I think Mel, Mel actually is very persuasive there. Uh, it, it is quite analogous to apartheid. But, look, be honest with me. If Afghanistan play in a semi-final against England in the T20, mm. which they could easily do, mm-hmm. and they win it, or while you're watching it, you're going to be kind of willing them on, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I sort of 
I'm I'm English and I will be. That's the yeah. That's <laughs> the conflict. Be. I've 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 barracked for Afghanistan but, probably every time I've seen them play. Yeah. But you see, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have done that for South Africa mm. in the 1960s and no. 70s. You know, if if, and, yeah, and if, if they'd been allowed to keep playing in the 1970s, you'd yeah. have been you'd have been outraged yes. by it. Yes. So it's it's kind of complicated and it speaks to our own sense of guilt and our own confusion around the entire issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose that's. That's why cricket is a metaphor for life, because it's it's quite possible to spend your life in deep confusion and mm-hmm. conflict and bewilderment. Yep. And I've spent, my, spent most of mine in that. And and uh, when something is easier for you, even if it's not the right thing to do, it's easy to do that thing. Like, I, you know, all of Australia was enjoying watching Australia qualify for the Football World Cup. Now, that will be, you know, the most corrupt edition in the history of the tournament yes. it's a, an absolute disgrace it's killed literally thousands of people it's a sports washing exercise for a, another brutal regime um, it is it is completely foul that that tournament is happening there but everybody will watch it and stay up and post their hashtags and have a good old time watching the world cup that's being played on the skeletons of those who helped build it so i don't know the yeah. easy path is always the Almost always the one that most people take most of the time. Yep, let's move on. Yep. It's, too, it's too painful to keep on dwelling <laughs> on the compromises we have to make to enjoy life. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a down note, but um, that's actually where the show runs out. I think we've, we've, we've done our program, <laughs> we have to stop it. So, oh, um, yeah. It, in, that case, in that case, if we're, if we're about to end, yeah. can I just put a, a shout out, yeah. as they say on Radio 2, to Tom Price, who... I really want to look into this, uh-huh. but I haven't had time to because I only realised it just before we came on air. Tom Price, the Gloucestershire all-rounder, mm. took a hat-trick against Kent and he did it in the most brilliantly diffident way. He, you know, took two wickets to the end of one over mm-hmm. and then got someone else out with the first ball of the next over. So almost certainly the crowd had forgotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, were, they were reminded, oh, it's a hat-trick. Oh! So the moment was probably lost. And then, bless him, he came out to bat and he was... He was a, ha- a could have been a hat trick victim. He was the huh. wicket, wicket Tom Price, right? And he saw off the hat trick ball and was out next ball, <laughs> which is kind of beautiful. <laughs> Against Kent, this was in the latest round of county championship huh. matches. I just wanted to give him a little shout out because um, he's had he, he had quite the game. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if that's happened before. Take a hat trick and be. In a hat trick. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think. He, he, I may, he, may have, he may have missed a great opportunity. Yeah, to to be part of history. I think I remember it. Or it's 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 vaguely hitting a memory nerve that says that I, I think someone was in a hat trick, but I don't think they were the hat trick, as in that the bowler. I think they took a hat trick and then maybe they were the second out in the hat trick right. sequence or whatever it is. I don't think there's anyone who's been the third out, but. I'm sure people out there listening in can tell us all about that because that's the kind of thing that we do on Storytime, uh, which which will be released on the weekend. It's where we uh, meander back through cricket history and look at strange and interesting tales. Uh, that will be our next edition, and then we'll have the weekly show next week. We'll have the daily shows from the third test coming to you from where? Is it at Leeds, the third test? It is at Leeds. Yeah. Yes, I should know that because yes, I'm going there. Yes, mm. good, yes. good. I'm glad you yes, know. So there's more of me and Colo, and yes, it is Leeds. I quite like Leeds. It's all right. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I don't. I don't mind Nottingham, but there's a bafflingly confusing one-way system, and that really always upsets 
out of towners because <laughs> we'd never know where we are from one minute to the next. Uh, nor do we on this show. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Daniel Norcross. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network and it is made possible by all of the lovely, generous people on patreon.com slash the final word. Feel free to join up there and send us a nerd pledge if you like. And otherwise, keep an eye on the feed, keep an ear on your headphones and keep the other eye on the skies. You never know when they're coming. See you later. Bye. I had to go about it.